Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, this feels, this feels The moment you decide. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Always edit. (laughs) So this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, we're calling this the History of Christian, no, wait, A History of Christian Theology. Um, and, uh. I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. Grace and peace to you from a history of Christian theology. I'm your host, Chad Kim. With me again in the conversation this week are Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams. I think we are working on our fifth week in Justin Martyr's thought. Just a reminder, Justin Martyr was from Judea and lived between 100 and 160 A.D., or C.E., Common Era. In this text from Justin, we hear more about his background from Judea and his development as a thinker. This is called the Dialogue with Trypho, where Justin attempts to to follow his development um, through various philosophies, ultimately to what he calls the divine philosophy, and then ultimately to argue with Trypho the truth of the fact that Jesus Christ is who the scriptures are discussing that Jesus Christ is the meaning of the scriptures. Justin goes through many different schools of thought before he comes to Christianity uh, and primarily finds himself as in the school of Plato, uh, but he is also aware of the Stoics and the Epicureans because in the ancient world at the time of Justin, there are many different schools of philosophy where students, usually men, although at this point there is evidence for some women, would go to a teacher to learn. They would study and learn to think like that school, and they would develop logic and various rules for how to think within that school. Justin eventually meets a man who leads him to what Justin calls the divine philosophy, and then Justin learns to think and to write and speak as a Christian. After telling us about this story, Justin proceeds to have this conversation with Trypho, the Jew. Scholars are uncertain who this man is, although a few have suggested Tarphon, a Hebrew scholar known at that time. Justin demonstrates from the Old Testament that Jesus of Nazareth is the meaning, the Logos, of the Old Testament, which is to say, the only proper way to fully understand what the Old Testament pointed to is through the lens of Jesus of Nazareth being the anointed Messiah, the Christ, who resurrects and ushers in the kingdom of God. God the Father shares his glory with Jesus the Christ. Critical to understanding Justin is to remember that Christos in Greek means Messiah, the anointed one in Hebrew. Logos means word, where we get rationality and logic. It is also important to remember that there was no definitive Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant church at this point in history. This is almost 200 years before Nicaea, where the Nicene Creed will be adopted. There were many teachers and many churches that were building and growing, but no one centralized control over all the churches existed. That is not to say that there were no early forms of what become Orthodox, as in straight teaching. Justin is a great example of proto or early orthodox thought being conveyed in a rational, thoughtful manner before Nicaea and before Constantine. 
Whether or not Trifo actually existed is less important than seeing how Justin perceived and argued that Jesus the Christ is the meaning of the Old Testament. Now, here is my conversation with Tom and Trevor over the dialogue with Trifo the Jew. Now, we got a lot of stuff to talk about. Yeah. He does address his view on, which I thought was interesting, Chad, but I was thinking about a conversation you and I had a long time ago about the view of the early fathers on scripture. Uh-huh. And I had made the comment that the stuff I'd read made it sound as if they have a view very similar to modern fundamentalists or at least conservative evangelicals. And I found a, there's a passage in here that he says that I think is really interesting that does seem to embrace that completely. And that's uh, in chapter 64. Uh, oh, no, sorry, 65. He, talk, he gives his view of like how to interpret scripture. And he says this. Uh, he's, of course, talking to Trifo the Jew. Um, and in the midst of the conversation, it says, you know, or I should say Trifo accuses him of contradicting himself and of reading the scriptures in a contradictory fashion. And in that he says, you imagine that you could throw doubt on a passage in order that I might say the scriptures contradicted each other, but you have erred. I shall not venture to suppose or to say such a thing. And if a scripture which appears to be of such a kind be brought forward, and if there be pretext for saying that it is contrary to some other, since I'm entirely convinced that no scripture contradicts another, I shall admit rather that I do not understand what is recorded and shall strive to persuade those who imagine that the scriptures are contradictory to be rather of the same opinion as myself. So here he makes this claim that the scriptures in no, which he of course, it definitely quotes extensively from the old Testament and from the gospels, but he says it in no way contradicts itself. And if it appears to contradict, then he's going to assume that he is an error Uh, and that there must be some kind of a reconciliation. I just wanted to bring that up because when I read Trifo, I mean, one or not, uh, when I read Justin in his dialogue with Trifo, this is the most fully flushed out theological system we've read as far as any works. And he sounds so much like a modern fundamentalist or an evangelical, which I think is really interesting. To me, he just sounds like a philosopher. Like he wants to say what like modern i've heard modern philosophers just say which is there is nothing in there that is the form p and not p there is maybe an apparent contradiction and if you flush it out it's really actually saying p and not a and it's not a contradiction at all but it'll look like one on the surface but that just the bible won't contain anything of the form p and not p and i think even i would even think probably some liberal more philosophy-minded Christians could still hold to that view. I mean, and that's, and I think maybe this is because of his philosopher training is why he's like this. Like he's... Well, I don't know why it would be essential to to not believe in a contradiction in scripture. I mean, he certainly is a philosopher. I would certainly wouldn't deny that. And, and when I think of, when I think of philosophy, Christian philosophers who do that, I think of, you know, really conservative guys, but there are no liberal theologians who believe that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. I mean, liberal theology is almost distinctly a something. I mean, it is rooted in what somebody believes about the scripture. And the definitive thing for an ultra conservative is that they believe the Bible is without contradictions. Right. So someone trained in formal. I just think 
when they say contradiction, that this is what we mean. We mean a very explicit. This statement P and its denial, not like just this thing and then and then something that sounds like different, which is kind of how the rest of people use contradiction. They use it in this more like loose way. So that's why I just mean to say like, I just think he, if he's schooled in Aristotle's logic and he really means, you know, a contradiction in the strict sense as a philosopher, I think he he might be saying something that's not necessarily like this super conservative piece of theology, just more like a super almost fine point of philosophy. Well, let me say that a couple of things. I'm not just making the statement off of this. It's off of the entire work. He right. is absolutely replete with what we would think of as fundamentalist, conservative, evangelical doctrines on his views on everything. Um, and I mean, what too, I don't know that being super trained in, so this notion of a distinctive, um, formal contradiction that we have today, you know, by studying that we get today distinguished from analytic contradiction, you know, mm -hmm. metaphysical things like that. I don't think he would have had that very strongly. I mean, even people schooled in Aristotle's rhetoric, which I, or logic, which I don't know that he was necessarily. He doesn't quote Aristotle once. He he no. clearly is a Plato guy. Um, yeah. I, I don't think he has the same kind of formal training. I mean, he's making a claim that sounds just like what what people say about the Bible. And it's not just him. Right. It's, I mean, you'll see it all the way up to Augustine. This is what drives the church fathers in their attempt to reconcile the scripture because they believe that if it, then that would in some way undermine its authority as the word of God. Yeah. And I don't so know if he's here. Let me, let me at least make right, this sorry. point. Um, I think that there's a difference between broadly speaking, modern ways of reading scripture uh, versus pre-modern ways of reading scripture. Whether you're a contemporary liberal or evangelical, what you mean by contradictions and no contradictions is a different thing. So I, I take what Justin is saying. All of this is allegorical. Like, I mean, there's no reason to literally think that the strand that Rahab laid out was uh, you know, everyone who read it, it was obvious that it was the blood of Christ and it was recognition that the blood of Christ will deliver us um, from destruction. Now, so that's an allegorical reading. So I think the way in, and now it doesn't help with the contradiction, but I'm just, it was the first one that came to my mind as far as what is allegory. So when he's saying there is no contradiction and when a pre-modern uh, reader set, or, or writer like Justin says there's no contradiction, what I take him to be saying is similar in conviction and faith to an evangelical, but his ability to resolve the tension, the way that he's going to go about doing that is a, I, I think is a different sort of thing. Um, I, you know, no evangelical wants to say that they're reading the scripture allegorically. Um, and granted origin is different than Justin, but I happen to know that origin has the same conviction and the way that he goes about resolving the tension is the three levels of reading scripture, um, and he says the face value level, the literal level is the sort of, um, the, the most shallow, um, and no modern evangelical likes to read origin on how to interpret scripture. So I think their overall framework for what is a contradiction and the ways in which it is resolved come from theological conviction, um, and rather than some really strict sense, even like, um, Trevor was saying, does that, I mean, that's how well, I, I, that... I, I agree with you that he definitely does not follow the modern evangelical hermeneutic. There's no denying that at all. I mean, he certainly doesn't follow what we would think of as a historical grammatical approach to interpreting right. scripture, which 
for our audience means that the primary way that you interpret the book is according to its authorial intent. Whatever the author intended, that's how you're supposed to understand it. I don't think he's hyper-allegorical either. I mean, he interprets some allegory, but he doesn't seem to be allegorical in the same way that some of the previous guys that we've discussed. I mean, like, I mean, his arguments, for instance, concerning the virgin birth, although I think maybe not necessarily all that strong in terms of the Isaiah passage uh, that is about the virgin birth, although not necessarily all that strong, he nonetheless is not going for an allegorical interpretation either. Uh, so uh, he does a little bit of both. He mixes, he, I mean, I couldn't define for you his actual hermeneutic, but all that I wanted to say is, is that fundamental to his understanding, regardless of the approach he takes to reconcile it, is this notion that authority means that everything it says is true. And if it contradicts, it can't be entirely true. So maybe we need to come up with a different reading or a different approach to how we interpret it. But he definitely, and I, oh, and let me add this. Although I think he would approach the reading differently, you said he would have a different understanding of what contradiction meant. I assume that when you say that, you mean a different understanding of how it would work in the scriptures. Because of course, I'm pretty sure that he would still have a classical understanding of what a contradiction was. So I think he would think of a contradiction in the same way we do. He just wouldn't read the Bible in the same way that evangelicals and fundamentalists do. That's what I would I think. Yeah, so, right. So I, I guess I should clarify around, yeah, the contradiction point. I, maybe better said, not necessarily even what, I mean, the contradictions that he's concerned with um, in some cases, at least, well, I don't know what the contradictions I think he's concerned with here. That one was, uh, I think that was the contradiction over, was it uh, who was the child of um, the virgin? Like, cause there's sort of, there's an interesting, uh, there's an interesting debate, uh, you know, where Christians read the Isaiah nine, I think it's Isaiah nine, right? Where the, uh, I, no, the virgin birth is Isaiah. You're right. Yeah. It's Isaiah seven. Yep. Sorry. So I think that's one of the big contradictions that they deal with back and forth is, you know, does it mean a woman? Does it mean virgin? And is it referring to Hezekiah or is it referring to Jesus? So there is sort of an interesting, that, that seems to be one of the contentious points that they go back and forth on. Um, I just bring yeah. it up. I, well, so I'm bringing it up here to say he's not trying to resolve the contradiction in the way that I described with origin necessarily. So it, it's fair uh, to say that those aren't the same thing. So when I meant, you know, so that contradiction, um, I mean, is, it's actually fascinating. It's a it's a contradiction interpretation rather than at some literal level of the text. No, it's not a contradiction. It's a disagreement about how to interpret the text. Yeah. Right. Well, he so calls that's not really that's not a contradiction in the text. That's a contradiction between them, like they're contradicting each other. So he, well, the passage they're fighting over where you quoted that in 65 is the Isaiah 42, 8 passage, which is where God says he does not share his glory with another. Yet he just made this giant case that God shares his glory with Jesus. God does share his glory with Jesus. And so he's like, and he backed it up with scripture. So I think that's why he's saying, hey, there might be a contradiction to be. Yeah. Or, well, the, actually, Trifo is kind of trying to make the case that you're just interpreting it in such a way that now there's a contradiction. And then yeah. He's going to go, no. Although I'm glad, Chad, that you brought up the Isaiah 7 passage. Uh, again, for our audience, there's a disagreement that rages today. Um, I, I would like to say it's a disagreement between Christians and Jews, 
but the the breakdown is actually way broader than that um because a lot of scholars just side with this Jew traditional jewish understanding uh, probably more reputable scholars um uh, more peer-reviewed scholars side with the jewish understanding uh that the isaiah 7 passage which most of you should be familiar with you know which in which prophesies of a virgin who will bear a child and his name shall be Emmanuel, um, that the Jew, Jewish scholars and these, these more peer-reviewed scholars, they will argue that the word there that is translated virgin in most of our Bibles is actually more appropriately translated maiden, uh, which, of course, since we don't use the word maiden anymore in English, they like the word young woman. Um, and so they say it's not actually prophesying anything miraculous, uh, it is just uh, a passage about a young woman who's going to give birth, and there is nothing there about a virgin. That instead, the 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 uh, Christians got the reading of virgin from the Septuagint translation, because when the Bible was when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, they translated that word into the Greek word for virgin rather than maiden. Now the thing is, is a maiden in the traditional sense is really another word for a virgin. It's just a different word. You weren't a maiden if you weren't a virgin. But the scholars will say that there's a shift of focus if you, if you change. And, and what Jews have always said is that that prophecy in Isaiah 7 regards the birth of Hezekiah, who's going to be a kind of savior to the Jews. Um, and so what I love about this is that this shows us that, well, nothing's new under the sun. Yeah. That's, if there's one thing I've picked up from this book, it's that the debates that he's having are exactly the same debates we're having today. Yeah. Which is like, which just means, I, well, I'll put it this way. I, I went to a talk once by Peter Van Inwagen, a, a pretty well-known philosopher. And the talk was on whether or not science could prove the existence of God. And he went on to argue that science could not prove the existence of God or disprove it. That instead, the existence of God was a philosophical matter and could only be determined philosophically. He then added, and what's more, nothing is ever decided philosophically. He goes, he says, you still have Platonists, you still have Aristotelians, you still have Stoics, and those philosophies have been around for thousands, over a thousand, two thousand years. So his, his response was, in philosophy, we resolve nothing. We just debate the same things over and over again. And that's certainly what's going on here. It's just the Jews have dug in and said, it's Hezekiah. And the Christians said, no, it doesn't make any sense if it's Hezekiah. It's got to be this other, uh, you know, this other being, the Messiah, Jesus, and so forth. So I just think it's funny that these debates rage. Uh, well, no, it's always Trevor, sorry. Good. Uh, well, I was just going to say, yeah, that's the most striking thing to me about this entire reading was just how this is a lot of stuff that I've yeah just seen modern debates over and I've seen modern articles written about but it's just still like an argument um, over the scriptures themselves about you know the prophecies that do or do not point to Jesus and it's it's yeah it's actually I think it's actually kind of just cool to see this early on such a rigid defense from the scripture they had then to uh i guess yeah to jesus um point or that it points to jesus so i only wanted to make a comment off of the virgin birth passage okay um uh because also uh and, and this can harken back 
to the episode, Chad, that you and I did with Caleb. I, I hate to bring up stuff when he's not here because it's really easy to try to argue with somebody when they're not here to argue. So I'm going to do my best not to be presenting an argument. I only bring it up because it's actually in this book. It's in Tripo. So the first thing is a concession I want to make because right after the uh, passage I read before, Trifo brings up with Justin the fact that he, he, he accuses Justin of, well, not just Justin, but all Christians of stealing their mythology, of basically taking from the Greeks and creating the story of Christ. And he actually references a story, a myth that um, Caleb brought up, the myth of Perseus and Danae, uh, in which Perseus or Danae is held captive in a tower by her father. And uh, he holds her there because he received a prophecy that the son of Danae would kill him. So he put her in a tower so that she could never get pregnant. In the story, Zeus appears in a, in a shower of gold and she is impregnated by that. And so Caleb brought that up as an example of a virgin birth story uh, that um, in, basically uh, influenced or uh, you know, kind of inspired the Christian story of Jesus to which the first thing I want to do is a concession. He brought that up and I said, I didn't recall that aspect of the story, the golden shower. And to be fair, after we had the conversation, I went back and looked and every version I, I find of it has that story. So I just misremembered. So that was my bad. The second concession I want to make is, is I do not think that most of the myths that people use to say that Christians have recreated their story from existing mythology, I don't think most of them work. I think most of them are identifying really weak connections. Um, so for instance, people often refer to the story of Osiris and Isis, and they say, oh, well, that's a story from Egyptian mythology that the Christians clearly ripped off uh, to influence their Jesus story. But when you look at the story, the story is of a god, Osiris, whose brother Set is jealous. Set kills Osiris, cuts him up into pieces, dismembers him. And then his wife, Isis, goes around, finds the pieces, sticks them back together. But she's missing one part, his phallus, his <laughs> penis. And so she makes a golden one. And then she gets pregnant, gives birth to Horus. Horus goes and kills Set, and he becomes the king of Egypt. That story just doesn't sound anything to me at all like the Jesus story. It does have a resurrection. It does have a miraculous birth in a sense because Horus was dead and now he's, or Osiris was dead, now he's alive and he impregnated his wife with a golden penis. But those don't sound anything like the Jesus story. What I do want to uh, concede, what I will concede, uh, is that this Danae story, which although her story in Perseus does not sound like the Jesus story either, the birth is much closer to a virgin birth than I gave credit for before. I do want to make a couple of comments, and this is why I brought this all together, Chad. You may wonder why I cut you off. This is why I brought it together with respect to the story, uh, with respect to this argument about the virgin birth. Isaiah 7 says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child and shall call his name Emmanuel. Everybody I know who is kind of skeptical towards the Christian story says that that word virgin should be interpreted as maiden and it's not referencing a miraculous virgin birth. Okay, that's what skeptics say. Yeah. But it's really clear that the Christians who wrote 
the New Testament were influenced by that story, by the Isaiah passage. Not the, they're very open about it. They got it from Isaiah. So if they are, in fact, borrowing from some Greek myth in some sense, they're not aware of it. It's a subconscious thing because they read a Greek New Testament. They read a, or sorry, a Greek Old Testament. They read a book called the Septuagint. It was a Greek translation. In that, it says that a virgin will conceive and bear a child. They read that and said, oh, virgin birth. And that's what they expected. That's where their story came from. So anyway, all that to say, I find that to be a contradictory portion to the argument to say that they derived it from Greek mythology when they themselves say where they derived it, Isaiah. And at the same time, people criticize them and say that they misunderstood the Isaiah passage. So anyway, that's just something I was thinking about while preparing this passage. Again, I'm sorry. to not, We should have Caleb back on and maybe he and I can finish that portion of conversation or whatever. I, I feel cheap saying it. I only bring it up because it's in the text because uh, Trifo brings it up with Justin. So sorry, Chad, I'll hand it over to you. Well, and it, it sort of reinforces a, a, a very weak claim, uh, but that if you read and knew the myths, then you would see that Christianity was derivative, um, which if, if that's your claim against Christians, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that, it, you know, I'm, I'm not put, holding one to that, but I know that people will say that. Like if you had an awareness of the culture, you would see its dependency. I mean, it's at least not the case that the one who wrote this book, who preserves it for us, he knew the myths, and he, yeah. he, even specifically that myth, uh, <laughs> and and was not convinced uh, by the argument that that his faith was derivative. So basically, this dialogue with Trifo the Jew—it's a Jewish guy—and uh, Justin is debating with him uh, over whether, or not, basically, over whether or not um, Jesus of Nazareth is also the Christos is also the Messiah, the anointed one. And this is the, the primary uh, issue, I, I would say. And then, you know, there are other secondary issues that stem from that, but that's what he's trying to demonstrate to him. And they come to this contradiction. Trevor rightly pointed out the contradiction is over, you know, who, like, how does Jesus fit? Um, how does the Christ fit within this glory issue in Isaiah? And so, I just thought it would be interesting to um, recognize, to look at, um, you know, Justin will be pre-Nicaea. So before the formulation of the Nicene Creed um, and before even the word Trinity has been coined by Tertullian. um, And he very much talks about the three. Um, And he uses various different scriptures to demonstrate this three, this threeness, but he's also going to hold it in tension with one. So you'll see him refer to the one, um, and then you'll see him refer to the three. Um, and, and so back and forth, he will go trying to continually demonstrate that Jesus Christ can be read into the person of God uh, from the Old Testament, which I, I just find, you know, in a, a sort of Again, fascinating, uh, no, recognizing that this is at least 100 years uh, before the formulation of, of the Trinity at Nicaea and, and um, Constantinople. You know, and, and he very much is looking at this as straight out of Scripture. Um, and so, you know, we could talk, uh, bring out further how that looks. Uh, but is it, is it a compelling, and I think his, his understanding of the Trinity might have some uniquenesses, but is it, do you find his argument from Trinity compelling from the Old Testament, from 
be it the three visitors in Abraham or, um, you know, the few different cases that he gives. Or, yeah, or let us make man in our image mm -hmm. in Genesis. He also quotes, yeah. Yeah. I find it very compelling. I mean, I think, so again, you know, for our audience, he is talking to a Jewish man. So he is reasoning from the Bible, from the scriptures. Be, from, that is, And when I say that, I mean from the Old Testament. Because, again, when you're in an argument with somebody or a discussion with somebody, you have to find common ground. You have to find something you can both agree on. By talking to a Jewish man, he is talking to somebody who agrees with him that the Old Testament is the Bible. So he tries to reason from that text alone that uh, Jesus is God and that, he, that the Godhead is multi-person. Uh, and he does it from a lot of texts. I mean, I wouldn't even be able to begin breaking them down. Trevor just referenced the creation story in Genesis when God says, let us make man in our own image yeah. rather than let me make man in my own image. And so he references that. Uh, Chad referenced the story of Lot and the, the three angels that appeared. Before, though, we go on to that, Chad, I would like to read um, from chapter... 128 from chapter 128 his definition of the trinity I, I say this because again for the audience let's frame this debate you all have probably heard somebody say something like this oh you guys believe in a trinity and the word trinity wasn't even invented until over 200 years after jesus after jesus was alive or they'll say something like this oh the trinity wasn't even confirmed until constantine Constantine again for you, class. Until Constantine was emperor when the Nicene Creed confirmed it. And that's just, again, not the story. I mean, as, as Chad pointed out, this book is written 150 years before the Council of Nicaea was convened. The Council of Nicaea defines what the church had already believed. And I want to just read here his description of Jesus. Um, he says here, speaking of Christ, uh, he says, he came to men uh, and is called glory because he appears in a vision sometimes that cannot be born. He's called a man and a human being because he appears arrayed in such forms as the father pleases. They call him the word because he carries tidings from the father to men. So he starts off by saying he's God's glory, he's God's word, and he's man. So he, he conveys here the idea of a divineness as well as a humanness. But then he says this. But he maintains that this power, but or I, but I maintain that this power is indivisible and inseparable from the Father, just as they say that the light of the sun on earth is indivisible and inseparable from the sun in heaven. As when it sinks, the light sinks along with it. So the Father, when he chooses, say they, causes his power to spring forth. He goes on and he says, Christ is indeed something numerically distinct. I have discussed briefly in what he was has gone before when I asserted that this power was begotten from the Father by his power and will, but not by abscission, as if the essence of the Father were divided. So there's some huge things here. First, he maintains elsewhere, not in the part already, maintains that Christ is eternal. He was uncreated. He always existed. Second, this maintains that Christ became man, truly man. Thirdly, this tells us that Jesus is separate, proceeds from the Father in a sense in the same way a ray of light does from the sun. Also, he says here, and this I think is most is two, two really important things. He says that Jesus is numerically distinct from the Father, which 
might surprise some of our listeners if you're not familiar with Trinitarian doctrine. But Trinitarian doctrine teaches that God is one being with three persons, three distinct persons. So he says here that Jesus is numerically distinct. And then he says that he proceeds by the power and the will of the Father, but he is not divided from God's essence, which means that he has one essence with the Father, which is the exact language that the Nicene Creed uses, one essence. One substance. One substance or one essence. Chad, you wouldn't happen to know, I don't know if you've got a Greek version there. Does it use the word ousion? I would have to think so. Uh, Yeah, I'm pretty sure it does. Trevor just brought up the word homoousion. The reason he brought that up is in the Nicene Creed, after declaring the qualities of the Father and the Son as distinct persons, uh, and and the word they use there is hypostasis. It's a Greek word. It means a person. They they say that, that Christ and the Father are distinct persons. They will say the same about the Holy Spirit. But they then say that they are of one essence, and they use the word homoousion, which means the same essence or one essence. Uh, We'll get into that a lot more as we approach the Nicene Creed. But so our curiosity here is whether or not Justin, when he wrote this, and he said that Christ is not divisible from the essence of God, whether or not he used the word ousion, because that's going to become a major fighting point in church history in about 200 years. Um, Yeah, so he... Yeah, I mean, it's actually, I mean, it's certainly the begotten language, geganesthai, um, which is where we say begotten, which is, you know, different from created. Um, so he's very Trinitarian and his understanding of of that. Yeah, usias patros, teis tu patros usias, of the same substance of the Father. I mean, it, it literally is the, tri, you know, the Trinitarian formula. And once again, guys. Don't let somebody tell you it was all invented in 312 with the Nicene Creed and Constantine. This exists beforehand. <sighs> I think this was Tom just getting a personal grudge out of the way. Uh, I, well, you know, I, I have that grudge anyway. I always bring that up. It's so frustrating. Well, and, no. you know, I mean, just to redouble the point. It's like when people cite the Council of Carthage for the creation of Scripture. It's a conversation that's been going on for 300 years. Um, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. it's always the, the councils. I, I guess I hadn't even realized the degree to which every council is in, in some way uh, a settling of a matter that's been discussed for a long time rather than, yeah. like, creating a new issue. Yeah, um, and... and- Issues were definitely brought up with some of the very first associates of the apostles. So, like, guy walked around with Jesus, and then he talked to his friend, and then those guys debated. It's like, it's that early. I mean, you can't, yeah, you can't just, yeah, push it to some far date just because the council happened at that date. Well, and the councils, if you follow their history, and we will, don't worry, guys, we will, you will find that those councils are not debates. They're basically laying down the law. What happens is one minority group pops up and says, well, what if it's this? And then the rest of the church goes, okay, we're just going to make it law so that everybody knows, no, you can't believe that, right? right. I mean, that's, it's just a writing. It's a, it's a coded, written rule of what Christians already had believed. There may have even been political reasons. Yeah. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Well, case in point, the Nicene Creed. Yeah. There were only three dissenters. Out of hundreds, three, oh, yeah. three dissenting bishops. Yeah. 
Thanks for listening to our podcast this week. Please like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology. Also check out our blog at a history of Christian theology.com where hopefully today I will get a post up about various methodologies for understanding scripture as that was part of our early conversation. Thanks again for listening. Come back with us next week for our second episode on the dialogue with Trifo the Jew.